702. Masterclass. Masterclass time. And on uh, for this masterclass on cardiology, the study of the heart, we're joined by Professor Ngobatsabedze, Associate Professor, Academic Head and Clinical Head of the Division of Cardiology, Faculty of Health Sciences, University of the Witwatersrand, and the Charlotte Matlake Johannesburg Academic Hospital. Professor, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, good afternoon to the listeners, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this exciting hour with Rile Bohile. So I have to ask a very valid question. It is a, a universal import- of, of universal importance. When a person's heart is broken, as a cardiologist, can you see anything on the scans that shows you that they've, they're in grief or... They're going through heartache. So when somebody says my heart is broken, because there is that pain you feel in your chest, can you see anything? Oh, great question, Rilabohile. So uh, normally for the majority of people, when we scan you and you you have a broken heart, um, we, we don't see much. But what I want to highlight is there actually is a condition uh, called uh, apical ballooning syndrome. It's also called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Uh, it's actually a condition where uh, triggered by um, excessive uh, neurological stimulation of the heart. Oh. So if you had, for example, had a loss of a loved one, were in an accident, or just uh, Jolo. Uh, or, or you <laughs> or you moved hearts, or you moved houses. So yeah. I, we haven't seen one where someone got you know, uh, divorced or broke up with a girlfriend, mm. you know, but it can actually lead to direct injury to the heart when it becomes weak. But uh, the good side of it is that that condition is a good, uh, responds well to therapy and you recover quite swiftly. So do, does, as a cardiologist, does it annoy you when people throw that term around where they're like, my heart is broken into a million pieces because it literally feels that way when you're going through that turmoil and and heartache. True, true. So, so I think we've we've learned to accept it. In fact, often as you you you're in the psychologist's butt <laughs> <laughs> we've, we, 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 we've learned to accept it. I mean, the heart is now the symbol of love, and we know that the heart physiologically has got nothing to do with love. That's your brain and your emotions, etc. But it's it's been a symbol, um, and and it's it's long long standing that that has been the case. So we've accepted that. What made you fascinated with the study of the heart? Wow, that's a that's a deep question. I could, you know, spend the whole hour explaining that <laughs> <laughs> that question. But uh, I think the heart. If you look at all the organs in the body, it's it's central. I mean, I mean all the other organs are part of the same team, right? Mm. But it's 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 a very delicate uh, organ in the body, mm. and um, at the time when um, I was actually specialising, I had uh, two subspecialities: um, either cardiology or nephrology. That what that, is nephrology? Uh, that's uh, kidney diseases. Oh, that 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 I had to choose from. But mm. my my uh, inclination was with the heart, just simply because um, when you um, immediately intervene if someone is having a heart attack someone has heart failure you know it's literally uh, changing them um, from a death sentence to mm. life in a matter of you know seconds minutes or hours mm. so there's that immediate sense of fulfillment that i've really made an, a significant impact here but also at the time 
Um, when I was in training in South Africa, we were having an HIV pandemic, for example. A lot of our colleagues were interested in infectious disease, mm. you know, to, to address this HIV issue. But what was slowly creeping up was the number of cardiovascular diseases mm. that were growing rapidly. And sadly, in 2024, cardiovascular disease is actually the number one cause wow. of morbidity and mortality in South Africa and globally, of course. Mm. So WHO data shows that. So, so with this increasing burden and this huge unmet need, especially in our region where we have focused predominantly on infectious diseases, those are some of the things that really draw me uh, to actually pursue cardiology. You know, you could have just said, I decided to follow my heart. <laughs> <laughs> You literally could have just said that. And I think it's so, so important what you're raising about the importance because I do find that when it comes to public awareness, there are certain illnesses that, you know, get more PR and press and attention from the public than others. Whereas when you actually look at the statistics, we're not fully aware of how important um, the heart can be in different ways and how it can be impacted by other things that we may be experiencing, even if not that heartache that feels like it's physically broken into a million pieces. I'm going to one day call a cardiologist's office and say, I need to come in. My heart is broken. <laughs> Fix it for me. So, so let's talk then about you, you complete the seven years of medicine. How long do you study for the speciality? And maybe talk us through, um, what are the key things that you learned in the study of, of the heart that you didn't even think would be a part of that journey? Because obviously having gone through seven years of medicine, you'll have an idea, okay, if I'm going to specialize, I'm going to do this. But only when you're there, you're like, ah. Yeah, yeah. So, wow, um, it's, it, it, it is a long journey. So first, I think um, at the early stage, as a, say a matriculant, you're probably thinking, oh, I just want to be a doctor. Yes. And you, you, you've probably have done well. You've got good grades. And that journey will take you six, seven years, depending mm. on which institution you're at. Then when you're done there, you have to do compulsory, uh, state mandatory two years of internship, mm. working in a, usually a, a, an accredited public facility. And then thereafter you get, uh, uh, deployed to do community service for a year mm. then after that so that's three years post-graduation after that currently you then have to go through this track of doing um, internal medicine or specializing to be a specialist physician mm. and that's a four-year journey with uh, two exams primaries and uh, uh, exit exams mm. and now coupled with that is also a research component that one needs to do a master's degree together with that. The on, then only when you have completed all of those, the four years of training, your exams from the Colleges of Medicine of South Africa and your master's or your MMED degree, mm. you then become registered as a specialist physician. Then only then you can start thinking cardiology. Wow. Which is, which is an additional three years. You look years. so young because I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> did you start at three years old? This is a very long journey. Yes, which is an additional three years mm. of training, which also has exams. And uh, at the moment, we're also in the process to couple it with uh, a master's in philosophy degree to get that um, um, specialization to be recognized as an accredited cardiologist, certified cardiologist. Yeah. What What was your research paper in? And now that you've done the work what would you do it in today if you had to do it today 
So, so I'm, I'm, I'm at the time for my specialization, um, my uh, physician specialization, I did uh, a study on, uh, sure, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mouthful, it's called periprocedural myocardial infarction. Basically, when we work on hearts and we fix the blocked blood vessels, we sometimes occlude those blood vessels. And so the question was, as we're fixing the heart, are we ourselves not causing harm to the heart? Mm. And so we did find uh, that, yes, um, there is injury that happens to the heart during our interventions. And in some cases, uh, long term, this can actually give you a risk factor for poor outcomes. Mm. So that is something that we've done. But currently what I'm involved in is the study of heart failure, which is a, a condition where the heart becomes weak. It can't pump normally. Mm. And uh, in most uh, individuals, Europeans... Caucasians, uh, Asians, and especially the West, the global West, um, it's caused by blocked blood vessels, what we call coronary artery disease. Mm. But in, in, in Africans, uh, hypertension is still the important, a very common driver of a weak heart that doesn't mm. pump well. But we actually see a significant proportion of young males and, and females, but predominantly males, the mean age of about 40 years of age, where the heart just decides to become weak. Mm. with no uh, 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 indication or risk as to why. Someone who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, hasn't had other comorbidities, they don't have diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, and the heart just becomes weak. And we call that idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy, which means the heart becomes weak and we don't know why. Mm. And so I'm exploring that, trying to figure out if in South Africa or in sub-Saharan Africa, is there actually a genetic risk for mm. this? And it's actually a familiar condition. So that's one of the research areas that I'm pursuing. Yo, um, already there's so many questions that are coming through about very specific cases. You know, when you were, we're talking about the heartache thing, right? And I, yes, I was speaking about it very tongue in cheek, but I know individuals who, when their loved one passes on or their child, and then very shortly after they die, Excuse me. And then you'll get told that, oh, you know, um, they had a heart attack. And many people will say, but we know it wasn't a heart attack. They died of a broken heart. Can you maybe share what your thoughts are of what happens in the body? I know in the one case, um, uh, my friend, uh, when she passed away, her mom passed away shortly after. But the connection was she was so depressed she never left the bed and eventually had a blood clot. And that's what took her but i was like that is a broken heart you know what would you share on that or what are your observations yes so, so, so just as we highlighted you know from our initial question this condition does exist that what you you're speaking about for most individuals you know as i said when you get the, um you know rejected by your partner it, it, it's in your mind you feel down but your heart is fine but in certain scenarios where this is really intense, you know, someone you are very close connectedly mm. to, or you go through a, a real life-changing event that has a lot of emotional, psychological stress, we know the heart can be affected. Mm. And in those individuals, definitely that is an important risk factor. But furthermore, one of the common causes of uh, a death that we see, especially sudden cardiac death, where this person was previously no okay or presumed normal, and then and they just suddenly die. Usually, what happens is many of us, as we age, our blood vessels start aging as well, and we mm. get a lot of what we call dirt or atherosclerosis in those blood vessels. And when we are undergoing this very intense, emotionally demanding scenario. 
um, those blood vessels can complicate and actually precipitate an acute heart attack or even an acute stroke. The same thing happens when we are very frustrated and stressed and unwell. Our blood pressure also goes high. So all of those elements, you know, there are so many mechanisms I can think of that could explain why someone who's grieving, who's hurting, could also suddenly, unexpectedly just die. For the person who um, is thinking about, you know, going the route of cardiology, maybe they're young, they haven't even started the medicine journey, or they're in the medicine journey already and they're kind of like, I'm really fascinated with the heart. What would you like them to know before they really embark on this journey? Yeah, I think I think even before cardiology, just about being a doctor in general, um, it's glamorous. I know the community, your parents, the church folk, everyone's excited. Oh, you're gonna be a doctor, You know, there's there's all that joy. But 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 what hits hard is first of all when you do internship. You realize you at the bottom of the food chain. Mm. It's hard work. You are actually providing an essential service to keep the health machinery going. And you are going to be for those three years in a state facility. They generally under resourced. There's a lot of uh, patient burden. So it's going to take a lot out of you because here you are, you've got the title, you're a doctor, mm. but there's this huge, you know, uh, rude awakening that this is now reality. And, and some are sitting unemployed. Yes, yes, yes. So, 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 so all of that is, it's difficult, right? But, but even more so, when you pursue cardiology, you almost don't own your time. Mm. Because right now, if you're on call, you know, a patient is having a heart attack, someone is, 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 is about to die. The sooner you react, the sooner you get out there, a life is saved. So, so you're almost always alert. And I don't know how many doctors do this. Say, for example, you're in the mall and someone just collapses. You know, um, you, you, you have a duty to go there. Should we start CPR, resuscitating that patient, et cetera? So, so, so there's a, there's that personal demand that I think sometimes you're not aware of. There's no such thing as off duty, yes, basically. Yes, yes, yeah. You're not, you're not aware of it until you're actually in it. And then sometimes you feel like, wow, um, did I really sign up for this? Yes. <laughs> you know, but, yes. you, but you realize, and by that time, I mean, you're what? 18, 20 years in. No, I could never. Listen, respect. Have you ever been on a flight where somebody's like, is somebody a doctor? Has that ever happened to you? Fortunately not. And it should not happen. All right. We'll take your calls on 011-883-0702 in the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. We have Ben in Kensington. Ben, go ahead. Hey, Rebel And hey to the doctor. I just want to spar with him as an engineer. I mean, basically says 10 years after ComServe and then you're employable. Mm. And we used to tease the doctors on campus. For engineers, four years to get a proper degree and people take you seriously. I mean, I'm a lowly engineer. I'm not a PR eng or, or owner's engineer. Yes. But I, and I have so much respect uh, for the doctor for, uh, in, in truth. But I think the young people need to understand, like, it's door, degrees open doors and some of the best doctors I know aren't even doctors anymore. They're business, they've got mm. MBAs, they're McKinsey mm. consultants, et cetera. So I think understanding the reality, four years compared to 20 years, uh, all that cost, he's doing it on his, on his, on his spare time. So yeah, it's, it's tough. Oh, thank you so much, Ben, for sharing that. Look, we absolutely have the utmost love and respect. And I mean, um, especially for the specialists that are serving 
at your academic hospitals, mm-hmm. um, we rely on you to take on these special, very special and unique cases and save people's lives. Temba in Clearwater, hi. Hi, Lev, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Good, no, I, I wanted to just to give a shout-out a, a to Nova, to man. We mm. go to the same gym, and my wife reports to him. Oh, Mova. is it? Hi, Temba, how are you? Good, good. Thanks so, for keep up the good work, so, man. So, Temba, when he, you guys go to the same gym, does he keep checking that you're doing your complete workout? Well, I'm, I, I always, you know, you find him also running in the street. You know, this doctor runs, he's a professor. You find him running in the street you know, in, in, in my neighborhood. You find him in the gym. I, he's, he's all out, man. Oh, thank you so much uh, for that call and for sharing uh, that the wife reports to him. Do you feel, um, you know, that there isn't a big emphasis on your leadership uh, skills? You know, because obviously the focus is on what you need to be doing with the scalpel and the steady hand. But there's this aspect of you leading a team. Yeah. So, so, so in medical school and in fact in clinical practice, it's very much similar to the army where mm. there's this hierarchy or chain of command. You've got interns, you've got comm services, the medical officers, then you've got the registrars who are specializing to mm. be specialist physicians, then the fellows who are now physicians specializing to be subspecialists, and then the consultant cardiologist. So there's always that. And, and that uh, definitely, I think in my training is something that I had to learn um, on the go and then also had to go for separate formal training in terms of how do you run a team? How do you, uh, keep everyone upbeat, motivated, et cetera, and making sure that your staff is also well taken care of. So, so in medical school, some of these elements are not focused on. And then as you progress in the training, um, these things come upon you. Mm. And naturally, the higher you go. And then now you need to actually multitask and learn, um, those elements here. A lot of it, I'm sure, is like you say, learning on the job because school can only teach you so much. But school, you know, if I relate it to being a performer or doing the work that I do, you can never recreate a scenario of being nervous, seeing blood everywhere and watching parents in the lobby waiting to get news that you you can't recreate. Yeah. And I think um, and maybe share with me, would you say that is the hardest part of your job is the one of having to. Let loved ones know that a person didn't make it and you, you did everything you could. Yeah. So, so I think, I think definitely that calls a lot out of you. And I think you have to also understand, um, uh, families and their cultural beliefs, you know, religious beliefs so that you speak to those things. But it's an important thing. Um, and not to lose that because that's the human connection. Sometimes, um, you become so automated, you know, you're dealing with sick people. Some make it, some don't. But when you engage the family, you have to be sensitive um, in knowing how to break bad news, um, giving them time to ask questions so that mm. they feel they've been heard, their queries and their thoughts, their ideas have been addressed so that they can also have closure um, um, regarding that. It's the same thing as well when, say, for example, maybe we haven't done well and there's a complaint mm. and the family comes and they're fuming, they're mm. upset, etc. to give them that space to actually uh, vent and to express what it is that they're upset about. And you just have to listen 
and take it. So again, as you, we talked about that sort of skill set mm. um, of how to deal with those situations coming with the territory, but definitely uh, something very important, delicate as well, because sometimes it's not so much about how great you are in uh, the interventions you perform, but can you make people feel, you know, they just, they also matter and, and this is their loved one. And that person is the person that they've just lost and, and be in that moment and in that zone and have a lot of empathy and sympathy. How do you protect yourself? Um, I mean, I've seen many doctors and specialists in my life and yes, we sit in files, but you guys remember us. You know, you'll be like, how's the kid? How's the this? How do you protect yourself where you have this journey, build a bit of a relationship with a patient, and then you lose them as well? How do you, you know, create that boundary wall? Because on the one hand, yes, I see the part of empathy and being all of these things, but I can also understand why you would need to have a certain level of a wall um, to protect yourself. You still got to go home and have your own family. You can't be crying every day about a lost patient. Yeah, so, so, so again, it, it comes with about self-care and understanding that you are providing a service. Um, and yes, these are human beings and you have to engage with them. But sadly, I must also say when you've walked a certain journey with a, with a patient or a family, and I call them families because often the patient belongs in the family mm. and, and, and the kind of diseases we deal with, we know that some of the, the success of our interventions, the family needs to be, to be supportive and mm. they, they need to buy in. You do get that uh, connection. There is a sense of gratification as well mm. that, you know, um, I've achieved something and, and one can get lost in that. Uh, if an in inverted commas, I call it a God syndrome where like mm. this person was dying. I saved them, yes. etc. And, 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 and all of that. But, 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 um, um, you also at risk. And I think sometimes that's why perhaps if I look at our paramedics and other health professionals, um, and even in doctors, I don't have the official stats on the top of my head, but even with doctors, they do get, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress mm. and uh, can also struggle with those elements uh, 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 later on when they've lost someone that they've walked a journey of years. But also another important aspect is realizing when this is now the end. Mm. Um, and, as in, and as in, you can before they have passed on. Yes. So you see that. The, say, for example, in our cardiac ICU, there's a patient who's come in. We're giving him all the support uh, to help the heart work better. But you can see that every day, you know, things are going backwards, mm. slowly, slowly, and it's time to prepare the family in terms of what is the most likely outcome here, and then, and even for the patient to start having that kind of real conversation um at the same time you don't want to say people sorry we shouldn't have even started helping you so you one ought not to do that but you need to discuss and make sure that they have a real appraisal of reality and what the situation is so what that you, do you don't say? do false ho false hope no you, you you just basically speak the truth you know um give them some numbers or how other patients in this similar situation respond mm. or, or or do because um, realistically, people will want to know how much time do I have left, of which you you will never be able to give an accurate. Exactly. So, so fortunately, with cardiology, um, most of the time when things really are terrible, it's quick because it happens suddenly. If the heart doesn't work, you're talking hours or days. 
Wow. But but if people have, say, chronic heart failure, mm. they can live years on therapy or even with support devices. And then only when they start complicating more and more, mm. then, you know, it's the beginning of the end. But but also it's access to resources because now we also have transplantation. Mm. Um, and so if it's a young patient and we really feel... Masterclass. It's a masterclass on cardiology, and we are with Professor Ngoba Tabedze, who has a very long title that I'm not going to say right now because we're going to jump straight into the many questions that have come through on 011-8830702 in the WhatsApp line, 0727021702. Andy on the WhatsApp line says, please can I ask a question for the cardiologist? My daughter's 10 years old. Struggling with dizziness, mostly at night when she lies down. We've done scans and neuro- and seen a neurologist and a physio, etc. to rule out brain and balance. Now we've been referred to a cardiologist, we've, which we haven't done yet. Is dizziness something that can be caused by the heart? That's from Andy. Yes, lovely question, Andy. Certainly dizziness can be caused by the heart. Uh, the heart uh, provides the blood pressure to get blood to the heart, to the to the brain and as you know blood carries the oxygen and glucose so when the heart has any condition that impedes um, blood supply to the brain the patient will become dizzy this could either be valvular diseases that are like a blockage or vascular diseases and even abnormal beatings that the patient may have that can lead to this condition and and one of the manifestations is dizziness thank you so much andy please please take that referral seriously i can imagine um the financial costs might be riding quite high hence the delay but please do book that um uh, appointment with the cardiologist one says could the professor please explain why my heart will randomly beat faster as if i got a scare and should and and should i should starting drugs be considered Hmm, why do i feel like this is anxiety (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm not a doctor, but to me, I'm like, this sounds like anxiety. So, 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 so what this individual is describing is palpitations mm. and palpitations are not normal. Mm. So you shouldn't be able to discern your heart beating rapidly, especially if you're not uh, in a marathon or running or exerting yourself. So if you're sitting at home watching TV or leisurely lying down, you shouldn't be having a sensation of your heart. That is palpitations and that could be due to pathological abnormal beating, uh, what we call arrhythmias. So I would encourage uh, the caller to please uh, get an ECG uh, assessed. What is this abnormal beating? Uh, Commonly abnormal beats like atrial fibrillation, we usually see many patients and they have this uh, commonly seen again with hypertension. I don't know what other comorbidities they may have. Hypertension is very common. So yes, I would definitely look into it. Question on that. Why... Do panic attacks mimic heart attacks? I've heard of many situations where people will find themselves having those certain symptoms and then get to the doctor and say, your heart is fine, it was a panic attack. Yes. So remember, if you consider when you're having a panic attack, you're triggering your fight or flight responses. Mm. So the same thing happens when you have a big heart attack. Your, your, your heart doesn't want to die and your body switches on a huge sympathetic surge to fight this. So you get a, a, a rapid heartbeat. Um, you may even feel short of breath, um, etc. So all those... Even sim- the pain in the chest. Yes. Mm. So, so all those symptomatologies are in keeping and it's because of the nature of your body trying to respond. So the same thing happens with, with a panic attack, which may be uh, uh, you know, psychological, for example. In certain situations, then it's triggered. Uh, your body has a similar response and hence you experience those symptomatologies.
But you can't die from a panic attack, can you? Yes, yes, you should. You you can't die. It's very uncomfortable, but it will not normally lead to you dying. Mm. But a heart attack will. Do though, um, um, I would say, is rather be safe than sorry. And not diagnose yourself if you're not sure whether yes. it's a panic attack or a heart attack. Yes. So if you generally have, so if you have a hyperactive uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system or nervous responses, um, those conditions can be diagnosed because it's usually not something that just happens out of the blue. You would have, you would even know certain situations and scenarios that bring it on, and you'd want to avoid those. Mm. Whereas a heart attack doesn't tell you. Mm. Um, when it comes, you will feel this heaviness in your chest. You will feel very nauseous. You'll start sweating. You will even feel a sense of impending death, like mm. I'm dying, you know. Mm. And, and, and those are the symptoms that are, are always worrying, and especially the heaviness, because it feels like there's a truck sitting on your chest. Yes. And most people would think it's going to be a very sharp, stabbing pain, but it's actually a heaviness. That's the typical manifestation, that when you feel that heaviness, um, and and you're struggling to breathe, you're short of breath, you're sweating, you feel like vomiting. Those are the alarm bells. Mm. Uh, Nikki in Reicha Park. Hi, you've got a question around anginas. Yes. Hi, how are you, Ria? Good, good. Go ahead. Good. Thank you so much for your beautiful shows. Um, doctor, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good, thank you, man. I went through some personal stuff a few months ago, and um, I uh, found out I had an unstable angina. What really causes uh, unstable angina, and how dangerous is it? Lovely question. Unstable angina is a, is a, a rapidly intensifying chest pain syndrome that you have, which is an impending or ominous sign that you're about to have a heart attack. Um, it, 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 when, when it happens, you will have it, and you should actually ideally go to see a cardiologist so they can assess and, and do an evaluation. Um, at Sometimes your body can abort this heart attack and, and the symptoms can lessen, but for most patients, it's, it's an indication that one of your blood vessels that supply blood to the heart itself is about to get blocked and it needs to be assessed and treated appropriately. Oh, all the best, Nikki. I hope uh, that gets tended to. Um, one says, uh, please ask what the relationship between depression and cardiovascular diseases is. Chris in Florida, but that was answered uh, earlier in our conversation. Good day. I'm 65 and suffered my first heart attack at 42, had a second one at 59 had a quadruple bypass thereafter. I, being an athlete since 1976, I was informed that is that is what saved my life. I walk up to 15 kilometers per week without any issues. My last visit to my cardiologist, he mentioned that my heart is functioning at 70%, which is normal. I also survived COVID-19 twice. Just wanted to share this with the listeners. Wow, thank you so, so much. So maybe, um, uh, uh, Professor, share with us, why is exercise so important? I saw a doctor speaking saying, even if a person is obese, even if a person smokes, but in relation to the ones who don't do those things but don't exercise, you're still in a better position. Yeah. So it's all about physiological conditioning. So when you exercise, you're actually performing what your body was designed to do, to mm. work. And when your body works, it burns the calories you become leaner, it becomes fitter as well, so that we're in the event of any 
physiological strain or stress like a heart attack, you are able to fend that off. And that's one of the good things that uh, we ought to be doing in terms of lifestyle changes to reduce our risk of having cardiac diseases. The other important thing I want to bring out that, as you heard this uh, uh, um, message, that this individual used to do a lot of running, a lot of physical activity, but they still had a heart attack. So again, a lot of us will go to gym and because we fit, we do half marathons, we think we are protected. Mm. Remember, there's a lot of risk factors that may be genetic, it may be your cholesterol in your blood, it may be a hypertension, uh, smoking is another one. Over and above, that could be working against you. So you need to adopt certain lifestyle changes that work for you or to protect mm. you to minimize your risk. So so definitely a, a good thing to do to get active and exercise regularly. We're going to take a quick break. Bits in Kempton Park, I see you. We'll be back in a moment. 702 Masterclass. 10 minutes to 3 o'clock. It's a masterclass on cardiology with Professor Ngoba Tabedze. And we take your calls on 011 883 and the WhatsApp line 072-7021-702. Let's go to Bets in Kempton Park. Bets, why do you have snakes in your house? Talk to me. Oh, God. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Uh, you and the doctor. Um, I've got people that's cutting the lawn outside our complex regularly, obviously, for purposes to keep it nice and clean. But ever since I've got house snakes in my house and I hear them move, I cannot find them. I'm over 70. If I walk into the kitchen and I hear them in the fridge, then I'll start shaking. Is this affecting my heart or what is the problem with me? Yeah, there are so many issues that need to be dealt with, Bets. Doctor, from a professional perspective, I mean, I do think you probably need to, we, we'll, we'll see if we can help you get some animal, I don't think it's SPCA, but we'll start there to see if they can assist you with the snakes in the house. But if somebody is daily confronted with something that frightens them in their home, yeah. can, they, can they be susceptible to a heart attack or can it affect their heart? Yeah, so, so what he's responding to basically is, again, is it just nervousness and anxiety um, is it an, and, and it's an appropriate stress response because now he's worried. Where are these snakes? Where, where uh, you know, am, am I safe, etc. So, so, so it is a normal response. Um, however, can it worsen on your heart if it's just this once incident? I don't know if this happens regularly. Um, um, it wasn't clear. But it sounds wh- regular. Whether you are, you are, you are. These are your pets. No, <laughs> it's because of what's <laughs> happening outside that now they've been house snakes. Coming oh, into the house, into yes, house. yes, okay. yes. Okay, yeah. So, 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 yeah. You are having a normal response. It shouldn't give you a heart attack if if your heart isn't good, isn't good state. Yeah. All right. Another question uh, says: um, Early last year, I fainted and fell face down. I was told something made my heart not to pump enough oxygen to the brain. Mind you, I'm only forty years old. What could be the issue? How? What did the doctor tell you, doctor? Yeah. So, so, so again, that's. One of the symptoms, we talked about dizziness. When the dizziness becomes quite severe, you have what we call a syncope, which is fade fainting. So often this is common in patients when the heart beats abnormally, especially when you don't, you're not even aware it's going to happen. Suddenly your heart beats fast or beats very slowly and then you just faint because at that time it's a, it's a, it's a fail-safe response from your body. When there's not enough blood supply into your mm. brain, you, the body will trigger for you to faint 
and the fainting will allow you to collapse and then you are in a, uh, a level field lying flat and now the circulation will renormalize and you, 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 you usually regain consciousness very quickly if it's fainting. The other thing to be con- concerned about is obviously seizures, which can also occur. So, so those are the, usually the two differentials that one needs to exclude. We've got some voice notes. Hi, and the cardiac doctor. Uh, my mother had a replacement of the valve. She has an artificial valve which was replaced in 1992. And then uh, ever since uh, she's been taking medication called for whoppering, and, uh, and then uh, which works to thin her blood so that the valve does not struggle to uh, transport blood. So what, what happens that she's getting very weaker and weaker every year so i wonder if the wafering has any side effects that are contributing to her getting weak uh, because she's also i think due to blood clot which formed uh, in the past years she also has developed uh, epilepsy she's also taking medication called epilim does any of the medication uh, contributing to her being weak kk victoria Look, um, I'm going to give the disclaimer. Uh, uh, it is very difficult to give over the phone diagnoses without a full medical history. So, uh, doctor or professor, rather, you will speak in general terms of what could be. Yeah. So generally, those two medications, warfarin and epilim, do not cause patients to become weak. What should be happening is that your mother should be regularly following up with the respective doctors. It sounds like you should be seeing a heart doctor and seeing a brain doctor, the neurologist, uh, who need to to, to monitor um, the state or the condition of the heart as well as uh, the control of the seizures that she's having. Note that despite the surgery that was done, some cardiac conditions may be progressive. Mm. And this is something why we you still need to continuously follow up so that if the disease is, is not halting or worsening, or say, for example, by the time they put in this new valve, there was already significant harm done to the heart muscle. That condition may be progressive. So over the years, as your mom ages, her ability to function, her ability to be more active diminishes, and, and this could be the manifestation that you're seeing. So I would say if she needs to continue her regular checkups, and during those checkups, please put this before the, the clinical team to say, is a heart still as good as it was before or is it deteriorating? All right. Um, last question that we have time for, Farai, asking about Viagra. Is it good or bad for one's heart? And I'm wondering as a cardiologist, they're saying I'm 55 years old and hypertensive. Man, I feel like cardiologists don't like Viagra. Yeah, so, so, so Viagra, the problem with it, it causes a lot of vasodilatation. It obviously helps with uh, your sexual functioning. But the problem we worry about is the blood supply to the heart. Mm. So during that process, if you have any blockages in those arteries that give blood supply to the heart, uh, Viagra can actually worsen your cardiac uh, perfusion. And then this could precipitate a heart attack. So before taking Viagra, please make sure that your cardiac health has been cleared. You're in the clear and you can use that product safely. Otherwise, you are subjecting yourself to risk um, uh, of actually precipitating or worsening symptoms of a heart attack. And don't take just for fun and don't overdose. Please, gents, 
please sir i'm going to do my best to try and get you back into studio because there's so many questions we did not get through but professor we truly appreciate your time we will save all of your questions and messages that have come through thank you thank you thank you for having me